My name is Ilan Haimov, and I'm a partner and the department head of the Profit Participation Group at GHJ. Welcome to our first annual podcast entitled 2023 Film, Television, and Other Entertainment Accounting and Tax Update, which will include team leaders from across our firm here at GHJ who will share a brief overview of what you need to know in their area of expertise that may affect the entertainment industry in the coming year. This would include my colleagues in order of speaking, Dan Lee, Managing Director at GHJ, will focus on federal tax updates. Francis Ellington, Partner at GHJ, will focus on state and local tax updates. Andy Kohler, Managing Director at GHJ, will focus on international tax updates. Rajpal Gibson, Managing Director at GHJ as well, uh, will focus on high net worth tax issues and updates. My colleague, Dan Landis, partner at GHJ, who will focus on audit and accounting. And last but not least will be yours truly, Ilan Haimov. I will provide you with an update on profit participation, any other related topics uh, that affect profit participation related matters. Each of our colleagues uh, that I mentioned will generally cover the following items. Uh, one to two key recent upcoming changes that may, may impact individuals and companies in the entertainment industry, and one recommendation or suggestion they may have for individuals and companies to consider in the coming year. With that, I'd like to first welcome Dan Lee, again, who will provide us with what you need to know with respect to federal taxes. Dan. With the year-end approaching, now is a great time to start thinking about the actions that we can take to potentially reduce our tax bill this year and planning for the next year. There are no tax rate changes for tax year 2023, but IRS has announced annual inflation adjustment to more than 60 tax provisions. The standard year-end approach of deferring income and accelerating deductions to minimize your taxes will still continue to produce the best results for most of the taxpayers. Bonus depreciation is an important tax saving tools for businesses. It allows immediate deduction on the most uh, on the cost of eligible business properties that's placed in service in the first year. But the 100% depreciation rate for the bonus depreciation has expired as end of December 31st, 2022. Unless the tax law changes, the bonus depreciation percentage will decrease by 20% each year starting in 2023. So for tax year 2023, the bonus depreciation percent rate will drop to 80% and 60% in 2024 and 40% in 2025, and 20% 20 in 2026. It will completely phase out in 2027. Another tax provisions I want to bring it to your attention is Section 181. This tax provisions allows 100% deduction for the first $15 million of the cost of a qualified film TV project that is primarily shot in the United States. Both tax provisions provide immediate tax deduction, but one big uh, important distinction of the ta both tax provisions is bonus depreciation, qualify for eligible properties 
that placed in service in the tax year. Whereas section 181, the cost incurred in the year can be deducted immediately. California generally does not conform both tax provisions because both tax provisions are federal tax provision. So if you have filing requirements in other states, please make sure to double check the conformity rules in different states. So above both tax provisions provide immediate deduction, it's immediate, uh, have the immediate effect reduce your tax income. So I want to bring your to your attention to this tax provision. Thank you, Dan. We appreciate that. Uh, we're gonna go ahead now and transition to Francis Ellington, again, a partner at our firm who specializes in the area of state and local taxes. And uh, Francis, what do our clients need to know with respect to uh, your area of expertise in the coming year? Thanks, Alon. Uh, I will provide a brief overview from a California tax standpoint. First, in July, Governor Newsom approved the Budget Act of 2023. As part of the overall budget, SB 132 made important changes to the film and television tax credit in California. The most significant change is that the bill added a refund component to the tax credit. Beginning in 2025, if the tax credit exceeds the company's tax liability, then the taxpayer would be able to refund the excess credit on their tax filing. This is important for taxpayers reporting a taxable loss for the year without the ability to utilize any awarded tax credit. The bill also extended the $330 million per year credit program an additional five years through June of 2030 and established a diversity work plan checklist requirement beginning in 2025 for projections. Second, I have personal experience with the tax ramifications of the Hollywood strike as my spouse is part of the IOTC union. As a reminder for individuals in the industry collecting unemployment, considering hardship withdrawals from retirement accounts, or accepting payments from funds benefiting individuals that are out of work, the unemployment income received during the year is subject to federal tax, even though it's not subject to California tax. Hardship withdrawals from retirement accounts are not subject to the early withdrawal penalty from retirement accounts. However, if amounts are considered pre-tax contributions, then they're subject to both federal and state taxes when you withdraw the funds. You may also receive a 1099 if you are awarded payments from other out-of-work funds, which may be considered taxable income. Now, finally, best of luck for those waiting on their next gig. And now I turn it back to Alon. Francis, very much indeed. Yeah, we, we certainly all hope that uh, the strikes will be over and everybody can get back to work. And that's really the key. Thanks, thanks again, Francis. On to uh, Andy Collar, managing director again at our firm, who specializes in international tax. And again, uh, our business is quite is quite international. I mean, there's just always a, a need for help uh, with with folks like Andy. So, Andy, what do um, clients and others need to to know in the coming year with respect to international tax? Thank you, Alan. 
First, foreign tax credit regulations is affecting clients that have international operations. And there's been some development on pretty controversial set of rules that the IRS issued um, that limits what kind of foreign taxes can be credited in the United States on your tax return. And for background, Treasury and the IRS um, issued proposed regulations in 2022 that caused a lot of uncertainty and fundamentally changed the way you determine whether an income tax or withholding tax that you pay in another country can be taken as a credit against your U.S. tax. The new rules were originally meant to prevent a foreign tax credit for digital services taxes, something that was targeting large tech companies in other countries, and those were enacted um, in the recent years in uh, some European countries mainly. The regulations, however, went way beyond what the target was, and they changed fundamental principles that have existed for decades. And so a lot of pushback from taxpayers and industry groups caused Treasury to take a look at it, and they issued a pretty unexpected notice earlier this year that suspended some of those new regulations. So what does that mean for our clients? Under the notice, you can still rely on the old rules predating the 2022 regulations. Uh, no election is needed for that. You just have to take a consistent position on your tax return for all of your foreign taxes. And the notice covers tax years between 2021 and ending before December 31, 2023. The IRS did indicate that they may possibly extend that relief. So that's welcome news. And if you haven't done so already, we would highly recommend to identify your foreign tax credit positions in the countries that you are operating in to make sure that you understand where you're at risk so you can respond quickly when then finally new rules come out. The second topic is an interesting Supreme Court case, Moore versus United States, and that targets the transition tax that came about with the 2017 U.S. tax reform. And the taxpayers here are challenging the transition tax that required taxpayers to pick up their deferred and untaxed earnings that they had in controlled foreign companies overseas and essentially put a toll charge on it when it was repatriated to the U.S. as if everything had been brought back to the U.S. Now, in their case, the Moors argue that Congress didn't have authority to um, enact this transition tax in the first place since it's a tax on unrealized earnings. And so it doesn't meet the requirements as an income tax under the Constitution's 16th Amendment, so the argument goes. We'll have to see where that ends up. But the important thing for our clients to note here is the reason why this case is so interesting is that the Supreme Court, if they are to side with the Moors, this would likely not only impact the transition tax itself, but it could also open the doors to challenges against other well-established international tax regimes in the U.S. tax code. So the impact would be really significant and would have retroactive effect for a lot of taxpayers. We'll have to keep a close eye on that one. And a decision is expected probably next summer. We're thinking around June. Hearings are in December this year. Uh, we'll be monitoring this closely and post timely updates on any new uh, developments. Thank you, Andy. There's quite a bit coming up. So I, we thank you for the, the highlights. I know there's more to it. We're now going to shift to Rush Paul Gibson, again, Managing Director at GHD, I mentioned earlier, that focuses on, on high net worth clients, family offices and the like. But uh, 
why don't you, Rajpal, kind of walk us through what are the things that our clients and others should take into consideration in the coming year? Certainly. Thank you, Elon. I'm so excited to speak with our listeners. The IRS has been up to so much. <laughs> Using the funding from the most recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, the IRS has hired employees and modernized their platforms. They're focused on what they believe are low-hanging fruit to generate revenue. They're focused on what they believe uh, will generate the most revenue. And one of the areas of priority is high income, high wealth individuals with more than a million dollars of income or $250,000 of tax liability. So in September, 1,600 cases were open for examination. The IRS announced that they've collected, now listen to this, they have collected $122 million from 100 of those cases already. How does this impact our listeners? Well, hopefully it doesn't. If you read some of these cases, the circumstances are egregious. Misuse of COVID relief funds for personal expenses, deduction of construction and carrying costs on personal homes disguised as business expenses. But it does give pause to individuals to consider what tax positions that they're taking and whether they're risky in nature, anything in the gray area should be reconsidered. Discussions should be had with your CPAs about whether we're being mindful about the backup and the rationale on the deductions being taken on tax returns, because now the IRS is watching more than ever. In the same vein, the IRS realized that many of their applications for the new employee retention credits were being filled out incorrectly. And as a result, effective September 14th, the IRS announced an immediate moratorium on processing new employee retention credit claims until December 31st. In addition, the IRS noted several initiatives would be forthcoming for taxpayers to determine whether they had filed erroneous refund claims. What's the reasoning behind the moratorium? If you're a business owner who isn't living under a rock, over the last year, you've been inundated with emails, phone calls, and faxes from companies claiming to be experts in the ERC credits. These companies helped business owners complete the ERC applications, oftentimes being paid based on what they were able to generate in refunds. But in some cases, the calculations were just plain wrong. And so the IRS is letting taxpayers make right and amend claims. Our listeners should be revisiting their ERC applications and they should be prepared to get a second opinion on these calculations. If your CPA is not up to speed on the rules, GHJ has in-house experts that can also help. So reach out to us if you need it. And Elon, I would be remiss if I didn't mention some of the changes that are happening in the estate tax world. Starting January 1st of 2024, the federal lifetime gift and estate tax exemption amount will increase from 2023's number of $12,920,000 to $13,610,000 per U.S. person. Now, you don't have to give this entire amount during the 2024 year. There are other options as well. The annual gift tax exclusion allows a taxpayer to give a certain amount per donee per year tax-free without reducing the taxpayer's lifetime exemption. And that in 2024 is $18,000 per person. 
the estate tax exclusion amount is set to revert to about $5 million adjusted for inflation in 2026. So this is an opportunity for some of our individuals who are looking to make some large gifts to next generations uh, to make them now or before 2026 when those exclusions expire. Thank you, Elon. That was uh, quite insightful. Thank you, Rashpal. I think my blood pressure was going up and I was listening to what the IRS has in mind for the coming year. But thank you again. And uh, next is Dan Landis, again, partner at GHJ with a focus on audit and accounting, uh, financial audit specifically. So I will pass the baton to you, Dan, to discuss you know, what clients and others should really pay attention to in the coming year with respect to audit and accounting. Thanks, Elon. In terms of new accounting guidance, I wanted to discuss the new accounting standard update over current expected credit losses, or what folks call CECL for short. First of all, it's essentially effective for all fiscal year 23 year ends and onwards. It's relevant for all industries and impacts the way you will estimate an allowance or loss on numerous types of financial assets, including, but not limited to, financing receivables, trade receivables, contract assets, it's a pretty long list of what's in scope and what's not. Now, Legacy Gap only required an allowance to be recognized if a loss had been triggered by a probable event. However, the new guidance represents a significant amendment, which will require companies to estimate the allowance based on current and expected future credit losses with expanded consideration when determining an allowance. Now, the guidance doesn't prescribe a specific methodology, and there will be flexibility into how this is estimated. Now, the full extent of the impact is unknown, and while this may not be as disruptive as the recent lease and revenue recognition standards, it'll still require a little bit of time by companies and their auditors to determine the extent and impact and any potential adjustments to how this is accounted for. The next area that I'd like to speak about has nothing to do with new standards, but it's more of a friendly reminder given what's going on in the industry. It's no secret that the riders and SAG strikes have had a significant and highly disruptive impact on the media entertainment industry. And many companies are experiencing significant slowdowns and losses. So please don't forget to re-examine your assets for potential impairment, as such disruption may have an impact on the valuation of certain assets, such as goodwill, intangibles, capitalized film costs, and investments in affiliates. And one thing that many of our clients have been doing is adding a disclosure in their commitments and contingency sections of their financials to address the fact that, one, these strikes have caused business disruption and may negatively impact company operations. Two, while temporary, there is considerable uncertainty about the duration and overall impact to the company. And three, it's likely to have a negative impact. However, the overall impact and duration cannot be reasonably estimated at this time. That concludes my section on gap accounting and audit considerations. Please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. I know some of these items can be a bit tricky. So back to you, Alon. You know, it's interesting because I was listening to you and I thought on the distributor side and the producer side, there are almost like different pressures with respect to the strikes. Certainly companies like Netflix and even studios are hoarding a lot of cash right now since they're not producing. So on the one hand, you have more cash flow but yet not, not a whole lot of activity. So there's there's all kinds of challenges. Definitely something for our listeners to follow up with you further with respect to what is really required in terms of disclosure. So th thank you, Dan. So I will go ahead and um, conclude uh, the 
discussion with the final segment, which is going to be focused on my area of expertise, which is profit participations. And uh, and I think you've heard that from Dan, and I think you've heard that earlier from Francis and others that certainly are film and television industry, an area that I'm focusing on within the entertainment space, is going through fundamental changes. Uh, our industry faces various challenges ranging from the impact of the strikes, increasing production costs, you know, right now with uh, inflation continuing to be relatively high, historical high. Uh, there's also the overall shift from linear to digital distribution and the consumer preference to streaming platforms is is really making a significant change and impact. With these changes, the scope and nature of our profit participation audits continues to evolve with more focus on valuation of related party transactions and continued focus on new media revenues and costs. As new media revenues are surging across the industry, especially in connection with library titles, we would recommend clients review statements of library shows and films coming in from studios and other distributors, which may have been in the past unrecouped or perhaps with little activity and maybe not even being reported uh, for some time by the distributors, perhaps because of unrecouped balances for some time now. With the license contacts surging across the streaming industry, it may drive statements to be profitable. However, there is a question as to whether such reporting is properly being reported especially since many of the old agreements did not contemplate streaming revenue. And therefore, if there's no contemplation or reference to it in the old agreements, one question that comes up is, is streaming revenue being reported on a royalty basis or is streaming revenue being reported on a net basis? Some of these questions could be resolved as part of an audit. However, we just need to keep that in mind as an area of risk. And that summarizes uh, the profit participation update. I'd like to go back and thank all of my colleagues who uh, shared a very high level overview of what we all need to be considering in the coming year. Please find more information about each of us on our website, ghjadvisors.com for more information and contact information as well. Thank you all for listening. <music>